Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, I like to do a Christmas episode every year because there is no day uh, better for thinking about politics than Christmas, I've always thought. Uh, Christmas is all about our community, our past, our history, our culture, and celebrating it with our friends and family and our political community. Uh, your community is really inseparable from politics. And so the topic of today, we're gonna, I'm gonna come back to that idea of, of, of politics being essential to your community because the topic of today is ancient Greece. And I'm gonna provide a, we'll do this in lecture format because uh, I just, there's a lot of facts and a lot of ideas I wanna get out there. And this is just going to be a broad overview of Greek culture from the time of about the Trojan War until um, Alexander and the, the Hellenistic Age and then the Roman conquest. So this is the period of ancient Greece. Ancient Greece is the, you know, it's often said that it's the foundation of Western culture, and indeed it is. Throughout our history, from the Romans onward through the Middle Ages into the modern period, we keep having in Europe this revival of interest in Greece. It, and it seems to go in waves. Every now and, and and then we kind of get away from ancient Greece, but then we always come back and, and realize, oh, wow, the literature and philosophy of this culture, this very ancient culture, you know, 2,500 years ago really was the, the flourishing of ancient Greece. It keeps coming back to us and we keep realizing um, the importance of it. And it keeps like infusing itself into our, our culture. So uh, the two biggest periods in the last millennium of revival and you know, of interest in ancient Greece were the Renaissance from about uh, the middle of the 15th century uh, for about 100 years, 100, uh, 200 years. There was a big revival of interest in all things Greek. And then again, in the 19th century, Greece became the, the core of all education systems, particularly elite education in the major Western countries, actually all Western countries, but especially Britain, France, and Germany. Now, why is that? Why, why is Greece the, the thing that we keep coming back to? I would argue that Greece is uniquely interesting because in itself, it is not in its culture is self-contained. You can, if all you did was study ancient Greece, you could have a full education in all of the major subjects, even despite all of the uh, developments of the last 2000 years, you would still have a well-balanced humanistic education if all you knew were the things that were known by Aristotle. Now, that's a broad claim because there's, there are obvious exceptions. Uh, our, our developments in science and mathematics since then have sort of made some of the things known to ancient Greece to look uh, rather primitive. But the ancient Greeks had developed uh, geometry to a very high degree. They developed uh, philosophy to a very high degree. They were the first people to start asking questions about epistemology. I mean, really start asking the questions about philosophy. Um, how do you know? You know, that, that really is what separates Greek philosophy from every, any other speculation that had happened in other civilizations like Greece or Mesopotamia or China, is that the Greeks were first to ask, how do you know? And particularly with Socrates. Uh, other aspects of ancient Greece that are, are unique and that were really the first time something was done and also developed at up to a level that many people could understand or that the, the at least reasonably intelligent 
fairly well-educated man could understand would be things like uh, uh, art, uh, whether uh, literature, uh, architecture, uh, statues, uh, statuary, everything that we consider a, a core of culture comes back to this. So let's contrast that with the period. Uh, before I start going into the aspects of Greek history, I'm going to go through like a kind of year by year, uh, not year by year, but century by century overview of Greek history to give the general listener an idea of where all, what all this is and how you go about studying it. Because I, I think this is important now, especially because as we're rediscovering our, our European culture and trying to get away from some of the you know ridiculous excesses of modernism and of uh, you know so-called critical theory, it makes sense that we should go back to ancient Greece in the same way that the uh, the men of the the late 1400s, the Renaissance, went back to ancient Greece in the same way that the men of the 19th century looked to ancient Greece as the core of European culture because it is that self-contained thing. You know, uh, to really illustrate that point, contrast ancient Greece and ancient Greek culture with, say, the culture of of Germany, which we talk about a lot in the show. And we talk about the culture of Germany because I think it's a natural balance uh, to the culture of, of Anglo-America. And, and, you know, this is a podcast in English. Most of the audience are English speakers, or they're all English speakers. Uh, Germany, you can't really understand German culture, or French or British for that matter, without understanding the Greeks and the Romans to an extent. But you can understand Greece without really understanding anything else. Now, that's not to say that there weren't foregoers of Greece, that there weren't influences on Greek culture from the surrounding civilizations or from, um, you know, previous civilizations. But Greece was such a, a leap forward um, that it can kind of be regarded just by itself. The other interesting thing, too, about ancient Greece is that unlike later Western culture uh, since the Middle Ages, is the, the Christian element is not there. So we can almost study what is uniquely European in isolation from the later Christian uh, religious and philosophical overlay that we have on top of our, our basic European uh, ideas. So where to begin in our outline of Greek history? I'm tempted to begin this discussion with uh, politics. Uh, it's, it's sort of easy to, to discuss history through the lens of politics because then we can, we can go century by century and then sort of delve off into the art and the philosophy and the literature. But with Greece, we almost have to start with literature because the poems of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which concern the legendary, well, semi-legendary, really, they're quasi-historical events of the Trojan War were the beginning of Greek history and the core of Greek culture. The Greeks, you know, as much as uh, since Greece, we've always gone back to Greece, the Greeks kept going back to Homer. Homer, the Homeric poems about the Trojan War were written, composed sometime around 750 BC, it's thought 800 BC at the earliest, uh, although they rely on earlier material. And they concern the world of 1200 BC. So this is about 800 years before uh, Socrates and Plato or 700 years before the Trojan War, and not the Trojan War, sorry, the the, uh, the Persian Wars, Mar Marathon, Thermopylae, and all that. So for the ancient Greeks, the Trojan War is to us what maybe the Crusades are. It's that far in the past. 
And it was controversial until the middle of the 20th century as to whether the civilization described in the Homeric poems, the Mycenaean civilization of the Greeks, was actually Greek. It was thought maybe these were people who spoke different languages, maybe they weren't Greeks, and these stories were passed on. But it was proven in the uh, 50s by two British scholars, Chadwick and Ventress, that the language of the inscriptions of Greece from this time called Linear B was a syllabary, that is a, a, uh, a writing system based on syllables, that reflected an archaic form of ancient Greek. So we know that the people who inhabited Greece at this time were Greeks. We also know that the city of Troy did in fact exist. Uh, that was debated uh, really until the middle of the 19th century, late 19th century, when the German archeologist Heinrich Schliemann went to Turkey, or what was then the Ottoman Empire, and excavated the hill called Hisserlik and found the remains of Troy. And it was you know, proven that this was Troy because there were many layers of, of a city that had been built up since about 3000 BC. And it's thought that the city that would have been the subject of the Iliad would have been either layer 7B or layer 6, perhaps. Um, layer 6 of Troy is like a, a very magnificent, well-built city. Layer, um, sorry, and then layer 7A is a much more, um, uh, not quite as magnificent of a city. And because the Iliad is a... Uh, an epic poem it maybe is combining different elements from different time periods there would there would have been a folk memory of troy being this magnificent city and maybe they were thinking of maybe homer was thinking of troy six but the actual city of the war was probably i said 7b that was wrong 7a because we can see that 7a was was much reduced in circumstance and that uh 7a was destroyed by uh by fire and they've even found, uh, archaeologically, they've found uh, an arrowhead in one of the walls, and they found other evidence that there was like urban fighting going on in this city in about 1200 BC, maybe the the seven or the uh, 1190s or 1180s. But there isn't all that much more that we know. Um, if you're interested in this question, it's called the the Homeric question, and there's there's many many books about the historicity of the Homeric poems, what elements from the story of Troy are true and what are, are invented. Uh, and, and it is sort of surprising because a lot of it actually probably was true or almost true. But for the Greeks, the question of the historicity of Troy and the Trojan War wasn't really important thing. The important thing was the Homeric poems themselves. These were sort of a secular Bible to the later Greeks. All Greek boys would have known, the um, well-educated Greek boys would have known even up to the, the whole Iliad by heart. Uh, and certainly people would have known many, many lines from it. It was, it was constantly brought up in later Greek literature. People would know in the same way that today maybe we, we sometimes reference Shakespeare. Um, Homer was known to them. The one thing I want to say about the Iliad, now this isn't you know a lecture of the Iliad. This is just a, an overall of Greek culture. But the one thing I want to talk about in the Iliad is the opening. So the opening of the Iliad talks about the great hero Achilles and his conflict with his captain, Agamemnon. Agamemnon was the king of Mycenae, the most powerful city-state in Greece, and he was the one who led the expedition against Troy, uh, according to legend, to retrieve the princess or the queen of Sparta, Helen, 
who had been kidnapped by the Trojan prince Paris from, um, from Agamemnon's brother, Menelaus, who was the king of Sparta. The initial conflict is that the Greeks have just taken some women, some booty, from the Trojans after uh, an engagement. They haven't taken the city. They've been besieging the city for nine years at this point. And Achilles has been allotted one woman, the presumably the second hottest, and Agamemnon, being the, the top lord, has, a, has arrogated to himself the most attractive woman, the uh, daughter of the, priestess, of the priest of Apollo. This angers Apollo, and Apollo comes and, and unleashes a, a plague throughout the Greek camp, and eventually Agamemnon is forced to relinquish the girl and return her to her father. Now, this brings up a very basic political question. And we see this at the very beginning of Greek literature. We have the question of how, what is the proper relationship between the commander, between the top leader, and all of his subordinates? And Agamemnon, being a, a primitive hero king warrior type, he plays by Chad's rules. So his rule is, well, I'm the top guy, therefore I should get the top woman. And if mine was taken from me by a god, therefore, I should go to the second, Achilles, and claim his. Now that I've been uh, despoiled of my right by fate. Achilles, of course, gets angry about this. And maybe in Agamemnon's mind, well, Achilles should just go to number three and take his woman. Number three should go to number four and take his woman and just go, go down the chain of command like that. Achilles is, says, uh, no, screw you. And he decides to sit out the fighting as revenge for Agamemnon abusing what he sees as his right. So now that Achilles has decided to sit out the fighting, the Greeks are start, they start getting beaten by the Trojans because Achilles was their top hero. And while the other heroes are great, you know, Ajax and uh, Diomedes and uh, uh, Odysseus are all great heroes in their own right, the Greeks don't have a man who can match the Trojans' top hero, Hector. Now, even though Achilles is thought to be way better than Hector at fighting, uh, Achilles is sitting out. So now Hector has free reign on the battlefield, and the Greeks suffer some major defeats. And that's what most of the Iliad is about, is the period where the Greeks are taking a beating because their top hero is sitting out the fighting because of the arrogance of Agamemnon. The story ends with Achilles getting back in the fighting. And so what is the only thing that could get Achilles back in the fighting? He, for honor's sake, he cannot fight or he won't fight because Agamemnon is treating him um, like a slave. And the only thing that trumps his honor is when his best friend, his bro, Patroclus, is killed by Hector. And now Achilles is more angry at Hector than he is at Agamemnon. And so he rejoins the fighting. He seeks out Hector on the battlefield. They have a famous duel. And Achilles wins, slays Hector, uh, abuses the corpse, and then uh, the last scene of the of the play or of the poem is uh, Prime, the king of Troy, coming to retrieve Hector, his son, his best uh, and the best fighter, the greatest champion of Troy, from Achilles. And so we see there at the end too a um, it's a a political question. Achilles's behavior uh, by despoiling or by by 
mm, abusing the corpse of his defeated enemy is seen even by the Greeks as being a little bit much. He's gone too far, and he's actually, um, his anger, his wrath has pushed him to an extreme that's really inhuman. And while this may have been acceptable in like a more archaic society and the, the sort of thing you would expect from a primitive warrior, the Greeks already of Homer's time looked at Achilles' Achilles's behavior in, in uh, abusing Hector's body as, as too much. Um, but then the, the poem does end on a sort of nice note where Achilles sort of finds his humanity and is uh, moved by the appeal of the father for the grieving father for his dead son, even though Prime and Hector were his worst enemies. So moving on with, with Greek history. So that's the very beginning of Greek history and legend. The Mycenaean civilization that conquered Troy uh, about 1200 BC, or, you know, legendarily did. It was, it may have just been a raid or a series of raids. We don't really know. But that civilization collapsed soon after. So in the 1100s BC, there was a great disruption throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. It's often called the Bronze Age Collapse, where uh, nobody's really sure exactly what the impetus for this was. But a there were great migrations of people from the north, uh, usually thought to be from the north, possibly from uh, the Balkans, uh, Sicily, Sardinia, who are called uh, the Sea Peoples in the Egyptian records. Um, and we know this from some of the, the temple writings and hieroglyphics at a, a temple in Egypt called Medinet Hebu, where they have big, uh, big stone reliefs of the fighting that happened when these Sea Peoples came and pushed into Egypt. And we know that you know, before they got to Egypt, they pushed through Greece and destabilized all the cities there and, and destroyed some of the, the, um, the big uh, kingdoms like uh, Mycenae and Pylos were destroyed in this fighting. And we, we know this also from some of the Linear B records that have survived. We know that uh, the kings and the, the, the petty lords of the Greek city-states were desperately summoning up men to watch the coast and, and try to prevent uh, raiding from these sea peoples. And... The whole uh, power structure of the Eastern Mediterranean collapsed. The only, including the Hittite Empire, um, the only state that didn't collapse, uh, although it was somewhat battered and bruised, was Egypt. So thereon in Greece, thereupon followed about 400 years called the Dark Age. And this is also the time in Greece where uh, there was a new, uh, a new sort of sub-tribe of Greeks. So before the Bronze Age collapse, there were essentially two types of Greeks. And this gets into the dialects of ancient Greek. Before that period, there were the two kinds were the Ionic-speaking Greeks and the Aeolic Greeks. And these languages are very close to one another and, and were probably mutually intelligible even in classical times. But there was a noticeable difference. Uh, Ionic Greek uh, in classical times was spoken in Attica, that's the area around Athens, and was spoken in, in most of the islands in the south and in the center part of the Aegean. Aeolic was spoken in the north, um, like Lesbos and some of the uh, adjoining or the, the northern parts of Greece. The new Greek tribe that appears in history around the time of Homer or a little bit before are the Doric Greeks. And so these are the famous, um, these are famous because the Spartans were Dorians. They spoke Doric. Uh, Doric was spoken also in Greece, or uh, sorry, Crete, and uh, also in, in the colonies uh, the Greek colonies that were established in southern Italy. Now, a quick note on the Greek language. So the Greek language is Indo-European. 
Uh, it's distantly related to you know, all the other languages of Europe and uh, northern India and, and Persian. It's probably, in some respects, it's closest to Armenian and perhaps to some of the archaic languages of the Balkans. But really, Greek is its own branch within the Indo-European system. As far as ancient Greek literature, it is mostly written in the Ionic dialect or the Attic subdialect of Ionic. And, but that isn't to say that the other versions weren't used. Uh, Doric was continued to be used in classical Greece in certain types of poetry, like lyric poetry was traditionally written in, in Doric, even though uh, philosophy would have been written in Attic. Uh, Homer, uh, because Homer was writing, was the, uh, he was, a, he was an epic poet, and he was trying to tell the story of Greece, uh, of the Greek peoples as a whole. He wrote in a, a dialect called, it's just called Homeric or Epic dialect, and it's a, a sort of artificial fusion between Ionic and Aeolic. That is the two types of Greek spoken before the Dorians came. So through that Dark Age, from about 1200 or the, the early 1100s until, oh, say, 700 or so, the level of culture in Greece really declined. Uh, the, the centralization wasn't there. The, the palace economies of like the Mycenaeans no longer existed. And the Greeks reverted into a, a much more primitive state, kind of comparable to the way or to what happened to Europe after the fall of Rome. That started to become undone and things started to develop in the 700s. We call it the Archaic Age. And so this is when in Greece... Uh, new city-states started to emerge, and originally, a lot of the states in Greece still had a king. Now, in, in Mycenaean times, they called the king Wanax. And that word, it's interesting, that word actually fell out of usage in Greek. It was still used a little bit in poetry, but now the word for king was Basileos, because, which had gone back to an archaic uh, Mycenaean word for a, a quartermaster. So you can see that as the, uh, the level of culture declined, now as these new like sort of warlords started coming up, they weren't able to claim to be kings. Now they were claiming to be quartermasters. But that word then sort of took on a new meaning as king because, uh, well, they, they appeared more like kings. Some of the city-states in Greece that, that emerged in this time, uh, you know, you've, you've heard of the prominent ones, Athens, Sparta, Thebes, Corinth. There was a, a shift from a more kingly, uh, chieftain-based society into a, a oligarchy in a lot of these states. So the rich men who were the, the, the key citizens in the state sort of collaborated with one another and formed oligarchies. And this, uh, throughout Greek history, we see this sort of pattern of the political form of the state is reflected in the military form uh, or the most prominent way of fighting you see that too in the middle ages with like knights and then um after knights are able to be killed by crossbowmen well and or by uh by gunners well then now mercenaries who are able to master the crossbow and the gun and the pike start to become more important and less and the knights less important we see the same development in ancient greece with the transition from uh oligarchic uh rich states who based on cavalry warfare or back in the mycenaean age uh chariot warfare now, uh, in like the 600s or so, we see the middle classes in a lot of these Greek states become more important. Why is that? Well, it's because the cavalry arm um, 
became less important. You think about Greece, the geography. It's a very mountainous country. Employing cavalry in, in the mountains is not particularly useful. It's, it's, it's a rather tricky thing to do. But infantry, particularly armored infantry like the hoplite, which is a, a man with a big shield and uh, armor and a sword and spears, that started to become uh, more prevalent. And so now the middle class has started to become more important in all of the Greek states. Uh, hoplite warfare is sort of a curious thing. Um, you know, despite the geography of, of Greece being being mountainous, you would expect maybe that they would kind of look more like, I don't know, Caucasian people. So they would have, uh, they would engage in warfare on a more like tribal basis and use guerrilla warfare and stuff like that. No, no, no. The Greeks preferred uh, an open out-and-out -out fight on an open field. They would almost, it was almost sort of ceremonialized how they would fight because they would pick when two sides had to have a war on the border they would generally try to find the flattest piece of ground they could to have their fight so they could have a, a nice proper infantry battle between two teams of hoplites, maybe with a little bit of uh, cavalry support. So this style of warfare had an interesting repercussion on the political formation of the states because since it was the middle classes that you needed uh, to form hoplite armies, they were the men who could afford to equip themselves in the right armor. And they were the men numerous enough to build a, a big hoplite formation to you know, form a phalanx and then go uh, fight another city-state. Well, that had an interesting back effect because now uh, the state relies on the middle classes. So oligarchies in Greece became less and less powerful uh, through the you know, 700s, 600s, and, and 500s. They started to lose a little bit of power. And by the 500s, you were starting to see uh, tyrants popping up in some of the Greek city-states. Now, a tyrant in the original meaning of the word is not like a bad leader. He's a popular leader who represents the interests of the middle class or um, perhaps the, the hoplite class, the people that actually form the backbone of the military. The state can't fight without these people, so naturally they're going to have some political power. And I, I'm aware that some later people will say, well, you know, uh, of course, that's tyranny. We should have oligarchy. And, and that was actually a common attitude with some of the more elitist Greek thinkers, uh, particularly in, in places like Sparta. But uh, the, the phase of, of tyrants in Greece kind of then led to the development of, of uh, democracy at Athens, which we'll talk about a little bit in a second. Another important aspect of this time transitioning from the Dark Age into the Classical Age, so the period from 700 BC up to about 500 BC, uh, is that the Greeks started to explore and colonize the whole Mediterranean. They were not the only ones doing this. The other great colonizing people of the era were the Phoenicians, uh, a Semitic people from what's now uh, the Lebanon. And the Phoenicians had another interesting effect. Well, they had an interesting effect on, on the development of Greece in that the Phoenicians were the first to have a proper alphabet. Or actually, no, it wasn't a proper alphabet. It was an abjad. So the Phoenician alphabet of 21 or 20-some 20, 20 characters was, a in the true Semitic type, only a consonantal alphabet. So they, they didn't represent the vowels. It was the Greeks who adopted the Phoenician alphabet and then added, or they appropriated some of the Semitic consonants that didn't have a use in Greek, in Greek and repurposed them as vowels to represent I, E, O, U, and, and A, and E, Eta, and Omega, and, um, and so on. Uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting, if you want to look at the history of the alphabet, you can trace 
some of these Semitic sounds like the ein sound or the oh sound and uh, the ein, for instance, the, the very sharp uh, sound in your throat that is common in the Semitic languages, that is our letter O, for instance, um, because of course the Latin alphabet is descended from the Greek alphabet and the Latin O comes from the Greek uh, Omicron. The, so along with, with having the alphabet reintroduced to Greece, so not reintroduced, introduced for the first time, because the first writing back in Mycenaean times had been based on syllables. Now the Greeks are, are um, the first people really writing in a proper alphabet with vowels. Uh, that allowed a greater development of uh, economics and culture and everything, because if you can write things down, well, now you don't have to, um, and now you don't have to remember everything uh, verbally. The colonization uh, movement happened because of uh, greater population in Greece. So if there was a, an excess of, of population, sometimes a city-state would say, okay, well, we're going to cast lots or decide somehow uh, which half or which third of our people is going to move out and colonize somewhere else and found a, a colony. And the colony is going to be more or less independent because communications are so slow. But uh, a lot of these Greek colonies, whether they be in southern Italy or even southern France or Spain or North Africa, maintain close, or and especially in uh, the the west coast of Asia Minor, maintain close contacts with their uh, older cities. So, for instance, in southern Italy, a lot of the uh, colonies there, like Syracuse, were um, were Doric, and they were connected with some of the Dorian cities, like like Sparta or like Corinth. This brings us to the dawn of the classical age of Greece, about 500 BC. Remember that the uh, the political developments were going toward more and more representation within a lot of the Greek states. This was carried to its logical extreme by the Athenians, who had a revolution in about 508, establishing a democracy that is ruled by the people. Now, in the first few decades of Athenian democracy, it was more of a, a mixed regime uh, it was not a true democracy. It only became a true democracy when Athens came into conflict with Persia and Athens had to develop a navy. So going back to that idea of, of the military forces influencing who within the state had uh, political influence. Well, you didn't just need, you needed hoplites to beat the Persians on land, but if you wanted to beat the Persians on sea, you needed to have a navy. Well, in ancient times, a navy needed to have a lot of rowers. And the rowers naturally came from the class below the hoplites. So you can imagine that in Athens of the 480s or 470s BC, you would have seen all of your uh, lower class men who were the oarsmen for the ships would have been really buff because they had to row the ship. And the hoplites were still important, of course, because they had to, to uh, be the Marines and, and stand on deck and, and do the fighting. But how did that we have to set the stage how did that whole conflict come up so greece of about 500 bc was still was organizing these city-states there were colonies in asia minor greek uh, like Miletus, and a great empire rose in the east this is persia in the mid 500s uh, cyrus the great uh, had founded the persian state he'd conquered medea and then conquered babylon and united all of those eastern states into a super state called the Persian Empire. His successors, uh, going down a couple kings, uh, the, the two most important for Greek history are Darius I and Xerxes. 
his son. Darius I came into conflict with the Greeks because there was a rebellion in the Greek city-states of Asia Minor, which had come under Persian control. This rebellion was ruthlessly crushed by the Persians, and the Persians got angry at the Greeks because the, Athena the Athenians had supported with uh, money the, the Greek rebellion because of you know, ethnic ties, and they felt, well, uh, we, we, we are Greeks, and we feel that these are Greeks, and we should support them in their fight for freedom against the Persians. Well, now the Persians want to get revenge. So Darius launched an invasion of Greece. His first invasion was in uh, was a, a marine invasion, sailed by sea, dis, uh, disembarked, and landed near uh, the little town of Marathon. The Athenians sent out their army of about 10,000 hoplites, fought a, a huge battle there, and it was a very close-run thing. Nobody would have thought that the Greeks, the, the puny Athenian army could defeat the mighty Persian army. They were outmanned and outorganized. But the heavy Greek hoplites were able to cut their way through the Persian lines and, and win a, a close victory. Uh, and like, like was the case in many of these ancient battles, uh, the casualty numbers are just completely one-sided. The Greeks lost 192, and the Persians lost like thousands and thousands and thousands, because once one side routed, uh, it just turned into a massacre. This this was a sort of the last great deed of the the Athenian nobility. Um, in the following decades and centuries, the Athen the Athenian nobles and the the middle class, the hoplite class, would always point to Marathon as their great moment. And uh, the the poet Aeschylus uh, was famous for uh, producing many many plays, but the one thing that he recorded on his tombstone was that he had fought at Marathon. Because that's what he thought was the most important thing in his life. Now, obviously, the Persians were not going to be content with getting whooped by the Athenian by the Athenians. So uh, Darius started to prepare another invasion. He died in the meantime. Uh, Marathon happened four uh, in four ninety, and his son Xerxes mounted a massive expedition of something like two hundred thousand. Uh, men to cross the Hellespont, that is the strait between um, Asiatic Turkey and and, uh, and Thrace, or what's now European Turkey, like right around Gallipoli. And he built a giant bridge of boats, marched his whole army across it, and just like locusts streamed into Greece. The first Greek historian Herodotus claims that this army was 2 million. Um, modern estimates put it at about a tenth of that, but nevertheless, 200,000 is a massive army even today. The Greeks had a conundrum here because they weren't united, and many of the northern Greek states, like in Thessaly, were aligning themselves with the Persians because it was a, they, they saw it was coming and they knew they weren't going to be able to resist. The two main Greek city-states of this time are the famous ones, Athens and Sparta. Uh, I should go back a little bit and mention uh, Sparta. Sparta was an unusual state even in ancient Greece because it was organized as a total military, uh, militarized state. The Spartans had been beaten in a, a sort of a legendary war back in the 700s BC by their neighbors, the, um, the Mycenaeans, who lived just to their uh, west. And their, 
their uh, famous lawgiver, Lycurgus, produced a new constitution that completely militarized the Spartan state. So the whole state was organized for war. They, the Spartans subjugated their neighbors and turned them into helots, that is, uh, serfs who could be, at least in theory and often were, uh, killed arbitrarily by Spartan citizens just, you know, because. And the helots' only job was to produce food for the Spartan military elite uh, who were the Spartan hoplite army, and the Spartans were able to field about, um, at this time, about 10,000 men. So imagine the situation. 200,000 Persians are coming to get revenge for Marathon and get revenge for Athenian, Athenian support of Miletus during the uh, Ionian Rebellion of 20 years before. The Spartans didn't want to be conquered by the Trojan, by the, uh, by the Persians, but at the same time, they cooperating with the Athenians, who were the biggest and most populous city-state and their you know, natural rival, was not the easiest thing. And there was a big argument over strategy. The Spartans wanted to uh, simply fight on land, because that's what they knew how to do. The Athenians wanted to fight at sea. There's two reasons for this. One reason is that if you look at the geography of Greece, Sparta is on the Peloponnesus. So there is a little tiny isthmus called the Isthmus of Corinth that's um, it's about four or five miles wide. It's fairly easily defended. Um, the thing is that Athens is on the wrong side of the Isthmus of Corinth. Athens is not in the Peloponnesus. And so if Athens or if the Persians were allowed to advance into Attica, that is the area around Athens, well, they would destroy Athens. The other reason is that the Athenians had built a navy. Now, this is somewhat of a, uh, a lucky stroke on their part, because in the years between Marathon and the invasion of 480, the Athenians had discovered major silver mines in their area. And the initial desire of the Athenian assembly, the you know, new democratic assembly, was to simply distribute all of the silver among the people, because tax breaks, be sweet, everyone gets money, everyone gets paid. A Athenian politician by the name of Themistocles convinced the Athenian assembly to not award themselves all 300 pieces of silver or you know whatever their cut would be from the silver mines, but rather to spend all of that silver or the, the bulk of it on building, uh, I think it was 300 ships, 200 ships, 300 ships. This was really a stroke of genius, and it's uh, Athens would not have survived if it had not taken this decision. So from the Athenian perspective, 200,000 men from Persia are invading Greece. What the Athenians did, and, and Themistocles was still the, the prominent politician of, of the era, he convinced the Athenians that what they would have to do is they'd have to fight at sea, and they would have to therefore abandon the city itself, because there was no hope in defending it from a 200,000-man army under siege, and flee to the island of Salamis off the coast. Now, in the Greek like councils of war, um, you know, it was decided, well, we should at least fight a delaying action. Now, this is the famous battle of Thermopylae. Thermopylae is a pass uh, right along the, the coast of the Aegean. You can, you can see the Aegean from it. I've, I've been through Thermopylae by bus, so I haven't stopped there. Uh, it's very stark, like huge hill country around it, and a very narrow pass, mm, a few hundred meters wide. So the Spartans and some of the other 
uh, Greek states sent hoplites there, had an army of a few thousand men, were able to hold off the Persians for three days. The first two days, um, they were just blooding the Persians and, and kicking ass and taking names. They killed a whole lot of them. Eventually, the Persians were able to get behind the Athenians, or sorry, the uh, Greeks, because of a traitor who led some, a Persian force through the mountains, uh, through a, a pass that would not have been known to them. They got behind the Spartan king, uh, famously dismissed all the other Greek forces and kept only his 300 Spartans and uh, 300, I think, Boeotians or, or Thessalians, and fought a, a desperate last stand uh, to delay the Persians for one more day. I think it is interesting to note that the Spartan attitude on who should be in this desperate, you know, clearly a suicide mission, was not the young men who hadn't had children. It was specifically the men who had already had a son. So every single man in that 300 was only a man who had already produced a son because Sparta was concerned with the reproduction of its state, and it would it would have been absurd to their mind to send off you know a bunch of 19-year-olds who hadn't had kids yet to die and then their family lines to die out. It was the men who had already reproduced, had at least one son, who were voluntold to stand their ground. This delaying action and the, the contemporary uh, naval fight at Artemisium, right off the coast there, gave the Athenians the time to withdraw their whole population, except for, well, a few fanatics, to Salamis, and then to use their navy to try to lure the Persians into a fight. So the Persians came down into Athens, they destroyed the city, they burned the Acropolis, and uh, killed off whatever um, men had decided to stand and defend the, al the altars of their ancient gods. And Themistocles led the Athenian fleet uh, in the Battle of Salamis, where he lured the Persian fleet in. The Persians mostly had employed uh, Phoenicians, uh, because the Phoenicians were the great sailors of the era, to be their fleet and won a crushing victory over the Persian fleet. So that actually saved Greece. Um, you didn't have to have a, uh, what the Spartans wanted to do is just defend the Isthmus of Corinth. Didn't need to happen because now the Greeks had dominance of the sea and the remaining Persian forces, um, most of them left and uh, Xerxes left a small force uh, in, in Greece around the town of near the town of Plataea, also in, in Attica, that was defeated by a, a Greek coalition army of uh, several tens of thousands of hoplites in uh, 479. So this, the Persian Wars were almost like a new Trojan War for the Greeks. It was the first time since the legendary Trojan War where the Greeks had, maybe not all of them, but at least some of the key states had united to defeat an Asiatic foreign enemy. And this time not over in Asia, but here actually in their homeland. So the Persian War, the Greek victory, set up the golden age of Athens. So after the uh, Persians were expelled, the danger was gone, at least the immediate danger. Uh, you know, the Greeks were still worried that the Persians might come back and attempt to get some revenge. But there was a period of uh, about a century of great flourishing in the arts particularly at Athens, because Athens was the biggest city, uh, say the biggest, but probably about 100,000 people living in it. So small by our standards and small by Middle Eastern standards. But for Greece at the time, this was 
multiple times bigger than the next biggest city, whether that was, I'm not sure if it was Corinth or Thebes would have been the next most populous, but Athens was the center of cultural life in Greece. So in, uh, in several areas, let's take the, probably the most uh, famous, most important uh, drama. Greek drama developed out of uh, kind of religious plays or out of, um, not religious plays, but uh, choral singing. The Greeks, since the Archaic Age, had valued above all else in art singing, usually with the accompaniment of the lyre, let's say a, a, a stringed instrument. And you would sing, you would sing the Homeric poems uh, and accompany yourself on the lyre. This developed into uh, religious ceremonies where they would have uh, a chorus that would recite poetry and sing a song. And in the Golden Age of Athens, starting in, in the early to mid 400s they had the idea i think it was aeschylus was the first one to do this of adding an actor so you would have a choral performance and one guy going around and memeing uh or i guess mimicking what the uh, chorus was describing uh another greek playwright sophocles added a second actor and so it sort of went on from there uh with the development of tragedy where now you had the chorus who would sing uh, the basic story, and then the actors not only would mimic what was being told by the chorus, but they would also start saying their own lines, in, in poetry, of course, and maybe start interacting with one another. So this was how uh, plays developed. And the three great tragedians, I've already mentioned two of them, uh, of this period were Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. There was also uh, a development of comedy. Uh, the only surviving plays of old Attic comedy are by Aristophanes, and they're actually very, very funny. Uh, if you pick up a copy of uh, The Clouds or um, some of his other works, I think about 11 plays of Aristophanes survive, they're very funny. I mean, funnier than anything Shakespeare ever produced. And the... Uh, these plays, they they really show that a Greek culture had gone just gone beyond just uh, poetry. They had now kind of produced their own form of art. No one had ever really done this before. And it was very uh, very influential on in the other Greek city-states. Other states started to produce plays as well. And they started to have um, great festivals at Athens where the different playwrights would produce a play, submit a play, and have competitions to see which play was the best. And uh, it was sort of a rotating uh, first prize. Would It would be Aeschylus and, and Sophocles and Euripides later would, would compete with each other and, and many times won the, won, the, won the palm, the first prize for, um, for their plays. The other uh, great cultural things that came out of this period, uh, architecture and art, uh, the uh, Parthenon, the famous... Uh, the most famous Greek temple was built on the Acropolis. That is the uh, sort of, uh, I guess, cliffs, massive, uh, that is in the center of Athens. And it was the, the core of the city. It was the e most easily defended point. Well, in this era, under the great Athenian politician Pericles, uh, a tremendous amount of money was devoted to building this massive temple uh, to Pallas Athena, the, uh, the patron goddess of Athens, Athena. Athens. I mean, her, her her name is in the city, so it fits that her temple would be the biggest one. And Phidias was the uh, sculptor who made the uh, the 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 great frieze of uh, that goes around the temple and is now, I think, it's now in the British Museum. But 
um, it was really the the height of Greek architecture was the building of the of the Parthenon. Uh, Parthenon, it's it's called the Parthenon because the ancient Greek word uh, Parthenos means virgin, and Athena was a virgin. This great era came to an end in the later part of the 400s with the Peloponnesian War. So the Peloponnesian War was the big fight between Athens and Sparta. And the two city-states had been competing with one another, Sparta being the, the dominant land power in Greece and Athens being the dominant naval power. Uh, eventually, things came to a head in, in 431, and uh, outright war broke out between the two states. And it went on for about 30 years. Uh, there were some interruptions, but the war finally concluded in 404 with the defeat of Athens and the destroying of its land walls that connected Athens to its port. And so once once Athens was, was destroyed and it couldn't uh, maintain connection with its fleet and with its colonies, well, now it was uh, at the mercy of the Spartan land power. The Spartans set up a, a uh, oligarchic regime in Athens because the Spartans saw that Athenian democracy was a danger to them and to their power. And it was quickly overthrown by a new democracy and this democracy uh, in the sort of reduced Athenian state then went about uh, punishing people who had stood up uh, or who it thought had undermined the war effort. So this gets us into the discussion of, of philosophy because the most famous person to have been killed in this, this repercussion after the, the Persian or the Peloponnesian War was Socrates, who was killed because, according to the Athenians, he had corrupted the youth and undermined the war effort by questioning the Athenians' gods. So, but how did this come about? How did, how did philosophy come about in Greece? Well, we have to go back a little bit and talk about the pre-Socratic philosophers and the uh, sophists. So in the 500s, 400s, with the development of cultural life, of political life, of democracy, and of oligarchy, of, of um, communal life based on argumentation, well, it became natural that if you were a young man of ambition, you needed to become good at public speaking because that's how you would win uh, support for your proposals in the assembly, whether it be at Athens or in other city-states in Greece. And so a, a class of man developed called a sophist from the Greek word sophos, which means wise, who would train young men in how to talk. And the reaction to this sophist, because the sophists didn't care about logic or truth, what they cared about was presenting the best argument to win a debate. So this is the difference between having a, uh, a debate where two, two men are arguing with each other and just trying to get, uh, it's almost a performance to see who can win over the crowd versus what the true philosophers like Socrates and then his student Plato developed, which was the idea of, of dialogue, where you would have two people talking, perhaps one questioning. Socrates was famous for his questions, trying to extract the truth from somebody. And the purpose of this questioning was not to win one over on the other guy. It was to get down to the core truths of things. Now, Socrates was not the first to start thinking along these lines. There had been other um, sort of proto-philosophers before him, uh, men like Thales and Aximander, uh, Parmenides. Mm, Pythagoras is usually counted as one of these uh, pre-Socratics as well, who would try to figure out what is the, the basic idea of the universe. And 
Uh, unfortunately, many of the, the works of the, actually all the works of the pre-Socratics are lost. Uh, we have only fragments of what they said preserved in the works of Plato and then later his student Aristotle. But we have some idea what the pre-Socratics thought. And they were getting at, they were trying to approach the truth in a rigorous and logical way. And this is something that had never really been done before. If you look at the intellectual history of Mesopotamia or of Egypt, you see nothing close to this. I mean, I know there have, there have been books attempting to illustrate that there was some sort of philosophical activity going on in Mesopotamian civilization, and we it, it's not a great argument. There really isn't much evidence to that effect. But we have it in Greece for the first time. The real breakthrough with Socrates, who was flourishing in that that the last decades of the 400s, was that he was concerned with the idea of how do you know? This is epistemology. It was not just assertion like the prime substance of the world is water. The prime substance of the world is fire. And we can see, and we can see this in this, that, or the other argument. Um, the most famous pre-Socratic is Heraclitus, or the maybe not the most famous, but the most um, advanced of them was Heraclitus. Heraclitus had argued that uh, the world is always in flux. This is a good observation, but it doesn't really get to the logical rigor that Socrates got to. Uh, Socrates, unfortunately, didn't give us any works. He didn't write anything down, um, but his student Plato did. Plato, he embraced Socrates' idea that questioning and argumentation to get at the truth was the best way to do things. Uh, to get you know real truth, and so Plato's idea, and uh, all of Plato's works are preserved as dialogues. So they're not philosophical treatises like we might see in from you know, Kant or Descartes. They're dialogues because Plato felt that you could only really understand an argument if you understood the two men who were involved in the argument or the uh, the audience that that was there. You, if you understood the context, you could get at truth. But if you were just elucidating abstractly in a in treatise form, like some of the pre-Socratics had done, uh, I wasn't technically a treatise. I guess they would have they wrote in uh, iambic hexameter poetry, but they were making logical arguments. But Plato wanted to uh, sort of reproduce what Socrates was doing, but in written form. And this was somewhat controversial, even for Plato, because uh, if you go back to really ancient, ancient Greece, back to the 700s, 600s, the education system of the Greeks had been two things. It had been music and physical education. Physical education, working out, of course, is important. And music is important because you, you play the lyre and you recite poetry, usually the Homeric poems, but there's no writing. And so you see in, in the dialogues of Plato, he's actually against writing in a way because he thinks that writing is degrading people's ability to memorize things and memorize poetry specifically. Uh, and it's I, I have a lot of sympathy for that argument. I think uh, writing, it, while it does allow us to build civilization on a much more complex scale, allows us to record a lot of information, pass information more efficiently. Unfortunately, this has the back effect of making us worse at memorizing things. Uh, people from pre-literate or illiterate societies tend to be very good uh, at memorizing things and at, at retaining information in their heads and then just spitting it out. Uh, and this is sort of a, a debate we have ongoing uh, in the century since then because, well, now not only do we have writing, we have other means of recording and, and transmitting information that are even more advanced. And you see in younger and younger generations more and more 
a degradation of the ability to memorize. So the ancient Greek attitude was, we still need to be able to memorize, even if, unfortunately, we have to do this thing called writing. Plato is... He's often considered uh, more of a philosopher concerned with uh, humanistic things, whereas his student Aristotle took it in a slightly different direction and became more interested in the natural world. Uh, Aristotle today is, I think, unfairly by many people regarded as primitive. Uh, that hasn't always been the attitude. For centuries since Aristotle, he was the philosopher going up until... Uh, this century even, or, or until, I mean, really until Descartes, until like the 1700s or so, Aristotle was the philosopher, and, and anything he said was just taken as apodictically true. Now, it is the, the faults of Aristotle are, are obvious. We all, we've, you've probably heard the story of Galileo discovering uh, or postulating that uh, a, a heavy object falls at the same rate as a light object, whereas Aristotle had said that, well, no, I mean, deductively, logically, the heavier object must fall faster. Well, Aristotle, being a Greek, he believed in the uh, superiority of a priori reasoning, and so he thought, well, why should... The idea of experimenting to Aristotle was kind of ridiculous. It's, well, I mean, any, any experiment can just go wrong. If I can deduce from logical priors what the truth must be, then that's the best way to come to a, a conclusion. This is based in, in, in geometry, uh, in the, the Greek development of geometry. People like Euclid had logically, and Pythagoras had logically figured out, okay, well, we know the degrees in a triangle. We know all tri the, the angles of every triangle add up to 180 degrees. This is always true. How can we, from basic axioms, develop... Uh, how can we draw different types of shapes or produce different kinds of shapes? How do you draw two parallel lines? How do you how do you know that they're parallel? Those sort of questions in in geometry had led to this this preference in Greek thinking for deductive reasoning over inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning being things like experimentation, uh, figuring things out, not based on logical priors. Aristotle, though, should be regarded still as the greatest philosopher of all time, I think. And the reason is that even though he was writing 2,300 years ago, actually more, he died in 322 BC, uh, Plato flourished in the first half of the 300s and Aristotle through the, the mid uh, 300s, he still is cutting edge in a few areas. Aristotle still is, um, he was the first philosopher to codify a system of logic and until the 19th and 20th centuries there really wasn't much added to that i mean i guess you could say leibniz added some stuff to logic that aristotle hadn't thought of but aristotle even today his system can be used as a pretty good approximation of rigorous logic and it's often taught in schools still um aristotelian logic is still taught uh other fields um I mean, he was very bad at biology, um, and at, at I wouldn't say he was bad at them, but his what he is, some of his uh, theories about how the natural world work have work have been completely surpassed. But in other areas, he's even uh, more important still than he is in logic. One of those areas is in uh, poetics. So Aristotle's book Poetics outlines the proper way 
or how all books are written, how all stories work. And his other book, Rhetoric, about how to give a public speech is still essentially how speeches are given. They're given according to Aristotle's formulas. The other one that he's still uh, really cutting edge in, uh, maybe not cutting edge, but still like about the same as logic, he's still the basis. And if all you know is Aristotle, you still have a pretty good education in the field, would be politics. Aristotle's book, Politics, outlines the six different types of regime that he saw in ancient Greece. And it's uh, in a very Greek fashion. There are three elegant oppositions between different types of regime. You have the first opposition is between the good and the bad form of one-man rule. So he calls this monarchy versus tyranny. A monarch is a good ruler who is the one-man controlling a state. A, a tyrant is a bad ruler who is the one-man controlling a state. Then if you move on to a governance by a few men, you have oligarchy versus plutocracy. So rule by a few versus rule by the rich. Uh, which, I mean, I guess are usually the same thing, but these are just the terms that are used for the good form of few man rule and the bad form of few man rule. And then finally, we have an imperfect opposition that he talks about, and that is uh, democracy versus polity or politeia. Democracy in Aristotle's mind and in basically the minds of all the ancient Greeks uh, with, I mean, I guess some exceptions, but in the great Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, democracy is an absurdity. And it's funny because when I was a school teacher, I used to mention this to students that, well, I mean, I think democracy is evil. And, you know, in American schools, it's always, oh, democracy is great. We should have democracy. And the funny thing is that the founding fathers and the ancient Greeks all would agree that democracy is an absurd way to run a country because it's inherently unjust. And to back up that point, Aristotle pointed to the Athenian democracy <coughs> that had um, you know, killed, <laughs> killed the first philosopher on spurious grounds. And he contrasts democracy with an idea that isn't really, he doesn't really think that there is a way to have many man rule that's noble. The only way to do that, or the sort of quasi opposition to democracy is uh, a mixed regime, a polity that combines the best element of a one man rule and a few man rule and a many man rule. And I think this is what the founding fathers were in America were shooting for when they designed the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States is supposed to be a mixed regime with elements of single rule and, and oligarchic rule and a little, little dash of democracy thrown in. Um, unfortunately, in the last century or, sh or so, that idea has gone out the window. And if you read the Washington Post any day, it's, oh, defend the, uh, our institutions of democracy, our sacred democracy, blah, 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 blah. So Aristotle thinks that's totally gay. The other field that Aristotle is still important in is ethics. And the most important doctrine of his is called the doctrine of the mean. And this is the idea that any virtue is the middle point between two vices. So for instance, courage is the median between recklessness and cowardice. If you're too courageous, you're reckless. If you're not courageous enough, you're a coward. Uh, loyalty is the mean between rebelliousness and slavishness. So in all of those fields, Aristotle is still the top guy. Let's go back to the political history. So I mentioned Plato, Aristotle flourishing in the fourth century BC. The, after the Peloponnesian War, 
Sparta had a brief period of about a generation where they were the dominant power in Greece. However, they were losing population. And it's much debated as to why they were losing population, why they weren't uh, reproducing enough men to, to uh, fill out their, their hoplite army. But they were no longer fielding uh, about 10,000 hoplites. They were fielding maybe half or a third of that. And they were able to augment their power um, by using their, their allies, their vassal states. But they were eventually defeated by the Thebeans, who uh, challenged them and defeated them in uh, 371 at a big battle. Um, the, the way the Thebeans won was they, they packed the left flank of their formation with a huge 50-rank-deep uh, hoplite block and then tapered off, kind of in the manner of Frederick the Great. They had an oblique line going uh, off to the, the right, and so then when they when they clashed with the Spartan force, the Spartan force was arranged in the traditional eight-man or 16-man deep phalanx. Uh, the, the Thebian left flank uh, punched through the Spartan right flank and caused a rout, and then the Thebians became the dominant power in Greece. But uh, after that, uh, the Thebians were still powerful. The Athenians were still kind of powerful. They'd come back a little bit. Sparta was still kind of a factor, but much reduced. And this kind of laid the groundwork for the uh, rise of a new state uh, in the north, that is the state of, of Macedon. Now, as all this is happening elsewhere in the Greek world, the Greeks really were, maybe they weren't as politically powerful as Persia. Sure, certainly not. They were still much weaker. But the Greeks, the, the Persian Empire was starting to kind of uh, totter a little bit. And Greek mercenaries became important throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. In fact, they were often employed by the Persians. One of the most interesting stories, uh, a great adventure story, is the story of the 10,000 Greeks who were employed by uh, a Persian satrap, that is a Persian governor, uh, by the name of Cyrus, named after Cyrus the Great, of course. Cyrus was the brother, the younger brother of um, Artaxerxes, who was the great king of Persia. Uh, at his capital of Babylon. And there was a succession dispute because Cyrus thought that he ought to be in charge and wanted to overthrow his brother. Naturally, the way, the best way to do this, to get, um, to get, he wasn't going to have as big of an army as the great king himself who could draw on all the provinces of, of the empire. But Cyrus thought, well, if I can hire a bunch of Greeks, they're the best fighters in the world, heavy infantry, I will have like uh, an ace in the hole and maybe I can beat my brother. So he he tricked, he kind of tricked these 10,000 Greeks into signing up and you had all these veterans of the uh, of the Peloponnesian War, a lot of Spartans and Athenians who were just uh, cooling their heels and really didn't uh, didn't have a, a civilian life that they wanted to lead. So this is about 400 BC, so it's four years after the Peloponnesian War is over. Everybody's milling about with nothing to do and oh hey this uh persian satrap wants to uh, wants to hire us great well we need the money so he he hired out a force of something over 10,000 it's probably more like 12 or 14,000 greeks and he told them that he needed to put down a rebellion in his eastern provinces now the Greeks were not terribly curious about geography or about what was going on inside Persia. And so they kind of went along with this. And he started marching them toward Mesopotamia. And along the way, he sprung it on the Greek uh, captains 
uh, Cleararchus was the top uh, Spartan uh, mercenary general among the Greeks, that, oh, actually, we're staging a coup against my brother, the great king. And at this point, the Greeks didn't really have a choice of turning back because they were getting paid. And I mean, they could you know, not get paid and try to trudge home several hundred miles through country that they didn't know, or they could stick with Cyrus and see it out. So they marched in Mesopotamia, they met the great king at the Battle of Canuxa, and the Greeks on the right flank, anchored on the, because it was the Euphrates River, uh, routed the Persian left, but the rest of the army of Cyrus was routed by the great king's army, which was many, many times larger, and there was no hope of victory because Cyrus, rather recklessly, going back to Aristotle, didn't wear his helmet and was and charged straight into the Persian line like a like a real hero, straight straight for his brother to kill his brother and become the great king, and uh, he was unhorsed and killed. So now you have these ten thousand Greeks stuck in the middle of Mesopotamia. They have no idea where they are. I mean, they know vaguely, but they're not. It's not like they had maps, uh, and they vaguely. Uh, understood that they were in a very bad situation and had to get out. The Persians, uh, under Ataxerxes, treacherously lured in the Greek captains for a dinner to negotiate with them and killed them all off. And then the Greeks did a, a harrowing march. They just said, okay, we. the only thing we know about geography is if we go straight north, we'll get to the Black Sea. So they marched north and harried the whole time by the, by the Persians and then harried by the the Kurds or proto-Kurds or whatever there was in the mountains there and got all the way up to the sea. And they elected, in a very Greek manner, this army functioned on a sort of democratic principle where the troops elected their commanders. And they elected a man by the name of Xenophon, who later wrote a book about this called the Anabasis. Um, and they did manage to get home. And the famous scene of it... <coughs> is as the 10,000 Greeks came up to uh, a mountain overlooking the Black Sea, the, the front of the column finally saw the sea, and they sh they all shouted, Thalata, Thalata, the sea, the sea, the sea. Um, and then they were able to hire out ships from the Greek colonies that were on the, the northern coast there, and, and most of them got home. But Xenophon is an interesting guy, because this allows me to talk a little bit about the development of history as a subject. So the first historian is regarded as... Uh, Herodotus, who was writing in the mid-400s, so about 50 years before the Battle of Canuxa. And he wrote a book called The Histories, or The Researches, that covers the whole world. And he was... His book was cutting edge because it was the first time that somebody had tried to write a, um, a, a historical story. Like, it, it wasn't just a chronicle of the deeds of kings and battles but it was a, an analytical understanding of what had happened in the past and what had happened in the, in the areas around Greece and within Greece, the, battle, the uh, stories of the Persian Wars and of the Greek states and of, of Persia and Egypt. And Herodotus nowadays is kind of dismissed as, well, he's the father of history, but the real father of history is Thucydides, who picked up kind of where Herodotus left off and wrote uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War up to almost near the end. Thucydides died a little bit before the end of the war. But Thucydides is regarded as really taking it to the next level. He really uh, made history much more rigorous, and he's a, a much more critical uh, analyzer of the different actors 
within Greek history. He's uh, he looks at what the different people in the different city states in Athens and Sparta were saying and and what they said their motives were, but what he thinks their motives might have actually been for their deeds within the war. And that development in history sort of mirrors the development that we we're just talking about in philosophy, where at first it wasn't very rigorous, but with Socrates, they started to get at how do you know? How do you know? Well, Thucydides is a contemporary of Socrates. So I imagine that even if he wasn't directly influenced by Socrates, he was influenced by the same sort of idea of we have to get at the, the real truth of things and not just rely on spurious stories. Xenophon, then living uh, at the turn of the century there between the 400s and the 300s, uh, after his adventures in, in Asia, he came back and he wrote a bunch of books. Um, I mentioned the Anabasis, but he also wrote Hellenica, which is a continuation of the history of Thucydides. Xenophon is, by modern critics, considered not quite as good as Thucydides, who's considered the, the master of, of proper historical writing. But um, it, it's one of those things that kind of goes with the times. Uh, Xenophon in recent decades has been coming back into fashion in, in, in uh, I guess, the classic depart classics departments as being maybe a little bit underrated, and maybe we should, we should look at him again. Um, if you're interested in that, I think it's a very good story, the Battle of the, or the March of the 10,000. Uh, there is a great book, uh, particularly good for uh, middle school, high school age boys, college age men, called uh, Xenophon's March by John Priebus that covers the story. I mean, it's really like reading an adventure story. It's very good. So this brings us now to Macedon. I mentioned Macedon had uh, was starting to rise with the, you know, as all the other Greek city-states were bleeding each other dry uh, in the Peloponnesian War and the wars between Sparta and Thebes. Now a new power rose in the north um, at Macedon. The, the king uh, who really took Macedon to becoming a regional power uh, was Philip II. He united. Uh, Macedon was able to subdue some of the neighboring non-Greek peoples and then also uh, start pushing into Greece and, and contesting with the Athenians. And his son, Alexander, then took power after Philip was assassinated. There's a lot of theories about that assassination. Some people say Alexander did it. All kinds of crazy stories. Uh, I won't get into it. But Alexander took over, and based on what his father had done, the political achievements of his father, and the military achievements of his father, his father had reformed the Macedonian army in a way that made it such that they could defeat a standard Greek fighting force. So the standard way that the Greeks fought, as I said before, hoplites, spears, formed up in a phalanx, go and, and attack the other side. Philip said, all right, well, let's take the spear, uh, the typical hoplite spear, uh, which is about eight feet long, and let's double it. Let's make it 16 feet long. And then rather, rather than carrying it over our head, uh, and sort of like overarm position to strike down on the other side, we'll carry it under the arm, and that way we'll have a we'll present a a front of of spikes just protruding beyond the first rank. You'd have uh, about five spears, sarasas, protruding beyond even the first rank. It's very and this could just steamroll any other army in Greece. The only way to beat it would be to flank it, hit it on the right particularly, or hit it from behind. But uh, Philip was able to work with uh, cavalry and, and light troops to protect his his core phalanx 
And this was the military system that Alexander inherited. Um, and, you know, Alexander was able to, upon his accession, put down some of the Greek states that, that wanted to get independence again. And then he united the Greeks and relying on the stories of the Trojan War, which Alexander very much admired as any Greek did. He looked at himself as, a, as another Achilles and looking at uh, or relying on the story of the Persian Wars where the Greeks had defeated the Persians. Now Alexander said, all right, we let's I will do it for glory. Let's conquer the whole let's conquer the whole world. He invaded Asia and defeated the Persian armies throughout throughout at several major battles, Issus and uh, Gagamala and, and um, pushed down through the Levant down into Egypt, stormed the city of Tyre, which is a, a Phoenician um, island town. And Alexander built a causeway, just dumped a bunch of dirt into the into the sea to build uh, uh, to make it into a peninsula so that he could assault the city. He came down, conquered Egypt, destroyed the great Persian, uh, the Persian king at Gagamala for the last time. And uh, eventually, Darius III was was killed later. Alexander then pushed beyond the borders of the known world. So far, no Greek had ever even imagined what was out there. He pushed through Persia, he pushed up into Central Asia, all the way up to the Oxus River, and then down into India, invaded India, had many famous battles against elephants. And then uh, once he had quasi-subdued the Indians, it was kind of a draw, um, but he had gotten their at least notional submission he returned to Babylon and then died there at the age of 32 in 323 BC, uh, allegedly of either an alcohol bout or of malaria. So Alexander's death left the Greeks in a unusual state. They had gone from being less than a generation before a bunch of city-states that had never been, had not in really in history been united other than as coalitions to now being a great empire that controlled all of what used to be the Persian empire and then some on his deathbed Alexander uh, famously was asked who should succeed you and rather than just giving one of his generals the all right you you sir Seleucus Ptolemy whoever you're you're my successor everyone has to listen to him alexander maybe it was just who he was maybe this is just the story that the generals told later but he said to the best man and so all of his key generals fought each other and over the next like 20 30 years carved out various kingdoms um the seleucid kingdom uh, under general seleucus was mesopotamia and persia and uh, ptolemy took egypt and some of the other generals took greece and uh, Asia Minor. And thereupon followed about a period of 300 years that we call the Hellenistic era, where Greek culture was the predominant culture throughout the Eastern Mediterranean and even uh, as far as Bactria, that is modern Afghanistan, and uh, had influence also throughout the Western Mediterranean. This only was ended by the ascendancy of Rome, and I'm not going to go into that. Uh, there's a podcast I did uh, last summer, I forget which number it is, uh, where I talk about the Roman conquests of Greece and of Asia Minor and of uh, Syria and Egypt in the last uh, last century of, of uh, the uh, pre-Christian era. So what are we to make of all this? 
I said at the beginning that we're talking about uh, community and how community is inseparable from politics. You know, it's 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 uh, it's Christmas, and I I like to celebrate Christmas with my political community. And I know there are a lot of guys out there. This is why I'm doing this episode. Who either they can't talk about politics, about things that really matter with their families, uh, or perhaps they don't have anyone to celebrate Christmas with. And so I I like to at least give everybody uh, who's in that position and who, who you know wants to listen to what I have to say something for Christmas. Uh, you know we can't spend it together, but at least we can sort of virtually spend it together and we can talk about about things that really matter. So in in Greek history, we see this common thread of the community being prior to the individual. I kind of mentioned this at the beginning with some of the examples. We talked about uh, the Iliad. We talked about uh, Agamemnon trouncing or, or riding roughshod over the rights of Achilles. Talked a little bit about... Um, Spartan hoplites at Thermopylae sacrificing themselves for the community and the Spartan state consciously choosing men who had already had sons and not young men who had not yet had sons. This is in, in direct opposition to um, what what the American uh, government did in Vietnam and probably still would do today, where they gave draft deferments to men who had had families and said, okay, well, you're a young guy who hasn't had a family. Well, you're expendable. Go fucking die for your country. But you're a man who's already had children. Well, pff, you have to stay with your family. That's more important. This idea is like insane to the Greeks. Uh, I'll mention another example too uh, from Thucydides. Thucydides says at the beginning of his uh, history of the Peloponnesian War, he mentions that there are these Greek states on the periphery of Greece, some uh, smaller cities, who are in a barbarous condition. And their barbarism one of the things that they do that marks them as barbaric is that they carry their weapons with them in public. Now, to a modern American, that sounds kind of like, well, isn't that, I mean, shouldn't a man have a right to carry his weapon in public? Well, to the Greek mind, why is it that the government has created conditions under which I should have to carry my weapon in public? Shouldn't I only have to carry my weapon if I'm fighting an external enemy? It seems to, to refute the very idea of having a state if people within the state are forced to defend themselves on the streets of their own cities. Uh, so this, this goes into the national socialist idea of Gemeinnutz geht vor Eigennutz. The common good goes before the individual good. And the whole history of Greece, the whole culture of Greece, and the whole philosophy of national socialism are in agreement on this fact. And it's in direct opposition to this sort of heresy that has arisen in the English-speaking world, particularly in America, that puts the individual before the state. Now, one can go too far. No Greek would agree that the state should tyrannize you, that the state should be able to tell you anything to do anything. I mean, uh, Agamemnon and Achilles. Agamemnon is doing some. He is violating Achilles's rights by taking away Achilles's war prize. So the Greeks are definitely against that, but they're for a more communal attitude where if you want to be an individual, well, you're not being a proper citizen. 
and this kind of goes back to that Aristotelian idea of the doctrine of the means. The proper, the virtue between two vices is, or virtue is the, the mean between two vices. And if we apply that to the state system, well, a, a mix of freedom and of order, we'd say maybe order is the mean between absolute anarchic freedom and a sort of cultish slavery. I think America would do very well to look to the Greek example for a necessary corrective of our uh, moral and political culture. The other thing about the Greeks, as I mentioned at the beginning too, whenever we have a cultural revival or a great uh, renaissance in the West, I uh, mentioned you know, the period of 1450 on and the period of uh, 1800 to 1900, it's always very, uh, people become very interested in ancient Greece again. This seems to be the thing that we keep, the, the well that we keep going back to drink from whenever we're thirsty. We go back to ancient Greece. So I think it's very important to at least get a familiarity with the facts of Greek history and of culture. Um, you know, one doesn't need to be an expert. One doesn't need to indulge in uh, bizarre theories about uh, what their uh, religious system was or, or, or these niche ideas. Like, no, 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 just, just read basic books. Some of the, the most famous and common books about ancient Greece, uh, there's a famous British scholar by the name of J.B. Burry who wrote A History of Greece. Uh, it's five or 700 pages long. It's a very good exposition of the whole thing. There's also... Um, I mean, if you just go to a used bookstore and there's tons of books on ancient Greece that are, are very good. The other thing is that uh, always with these revivals of, uh, of interest in Greece in the West, there's also a, a at the same time, a, a revival in the interest of learning ancient Greek. Uh, very much so in the Renaissance, uh, look at a man like Erasmus, who um, translated the Bible first, the first time translated the Bible directly from Greek into, well, sorry, hold on. He translated the Bible, for the, I guess the first modern translation from Greek into Latin. Um, of course, uh, St. Jerome had done the same thing, but uh, Erasmus was interested in seeing, okay, well, let's, let's really look at what the ancient Greek means and, and try to produce a better translation. Um, there's a particular function to the study of ancient Greek that was lost in the early decades of the 20th century. Before that, uh, the elite schools in all the European countries had made Greek a critical part of the curriculum. Everybody had to learn, uh, every you know guy who was going to be part of the elite had to learn Greek. And this kind of goes, this is sort of like an intellectual hazing that I think is necessary. It kind of goes along with the idea that I, I mentioned in that speech I posted on Telegram the other day about you know selecting leadership, selecting for leadership on the basis of uh, bravery and sacrifice, uh, risk, and uh, a good moral grounding. These are the things that are the sine qua known of a leader. Uh, all of his other talents, like uh, his speaking ability or his um, intelligence, are, are important, but they're secondary. Uh, you can have a very intelligent and clever man who doesn't have the moral grounding and doesn't have the sacrifice that allows him to prove to a man of any station, of any level of intelligence, that he actually is worth following. Uh, it's not humiliating to follow somebody who is a very solid man. Um, contrast that with you know, Agamemnon. Again, Agamemnon was faulty in that he didn't respect his subordinates. Bring that back to the intellectual idea of learning Greek. Well, Greek, forcing people to learn Greek 
kind of weeds out the people who are fake smart, the kind of people who uh, go to school and are just good at regurgitating facts. It's very difficult to master something like ancient Greek. I, I haven't done it. Um, I have a, a sketchy knowledge of it. But this was an important part of the intellectual culture of uh, Europe of 100 years ago, or 200 years ago, specifically because you could really find out who was committed to learning this thing that has no real practical application. But it does have a, a moral use in sorting people out. And it also has a good use because if men in the different European countries are all learning the same ancient Greek culture, well, you know, the French, the Germans, the British have their own histories, but they can all look back to ancient Greece. And we often have these stories from the World Wars of British officers and German officers being able to talk to one another, you know, not in ancient Greek, but being able to reference stories from ancient Greece and discover sort of cultural commonality there. And I think that in our, our current struggle as whites in Western Europe and America and South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, this is a uh, this is something that we all can can look at for uh, great and noble examples. So thanks for listening, and uh, Merry Christmas, Frohe Weihnachten, and until next time, Sieg Heil.